This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 17th, 2017, and this is episode 1985 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Monday. That means a listener feedback show. Uh, here's what we're going to be talking about today. Number one, I have an announcement. Uh, I am now on Patreon. I've talked about enough uh, enough about it with other people. Sh- you know, should do it. That I figured, well, maybe I'll try it out, see if it works, see if anybody wants to support the work we do through that channel versus MSB. Uh, I think it might be a good fit for international uh, listeners and some other people that just don't want to be in the MSB. Uh, it also kind of reaches out into the YouTube community. It's a sub-community of this one that has people in it that aren't in this one. So anyway, I'll tell you about that and ask you what you think I should offer as rewards on Patreon. And uh, interested to hear what you think. Um, next, I have a quail recipe. I'm going to try probably the way that it was done, even though it's really not good for you. But I'm probably also going to modify this. It has me thinking. I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, I have a question on converting from grilling with gas to grilling with charcoal and wood, specifically looking at moving over to the Weber kettle or the big green egg, and I have some thoughts on that. Uh, also, are we headed for a new world of decentralized social media with rewards? What the hell does that mean? I'll tell you about that when we get to it. Understanding media manipulation and finding good information. I guess that's what this question is. a little bit of a sideways question. Uh, should you pinch flowers off of young perennials to encourage vigorous growth, or is that just a myth? We'll talk about that. Uh, more advice on canoe fishing and camping. And hey, would you pay $1,000 a month to live in a bus? Here's why someone might, and why it might not be that bad of a deal after all. And how do you set pricing for any product or service? It's interesting those two ended up uh, as the last two with the bus one first because they are going to feed into each other. We're going to have a little lesson about business today. All right. With that knocked out, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1985, because the episode's 1985. I have, from Alex Shrug today, the Shadow Warriors' first big success. I also have Iran-Contra, contributed by Southpaw Ben. And i got some bullet points. We're just going to read a few of these. Born in music this year, and Alex says it's starting to get uh, kind of thin pickings with you know notable uh, births in anything but in music Carly Rae Jepsen who did Call Me Maybe and made it an annoying entire year for people with uh, people doing videos on YouTube that were just blah anyway and Bruno Mars uh, he said he saw him on SNL and liked him Bruno Mars isn't bad I guess 
In movies, Bug Hall, Alfalfa and the Little Rascals, and Michelle Trachenberg is born this year. She was Harriet the Spy, and in the TV series, is, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Mercy. This year in film, this is all movies you'll probably remember if you're, uh, if you're an 80s kid. Back to the Future 1, which was the best one in my opinion, uh, with Michael J. Fox. Uh, the Color Purple with Whoopi Goldberg winning Best Actress. Well-deserved, but her politics suck like Hoover. Yeah, I don't even think she was good in that. I, don't think, I think she's a terrible actress, honestly. Cocoon, the elderly are renewed by space aliens. That one was kind of cool. You know, this, the careers of a lot of aging actors get renewed in this, too. Witness with Harrison Ford begins a fascination with the Amis. And The Goonies, Friday night, desperately seeking Susan, starring a credible Madonna at the time. Anyway, this year in music, or year in TV, I'm sorry, uh, VH1 launches. NBC uses satellites to connect to its affiliates. They also dropped the NBC chime and broadcast finally in stereo. Moonlighting comes on with Bruce Willis as a Playboy private detective, partnering with Sybil Shepard. Uh, Larry King live. He thinks it's a virtue to go on the air unprepared. The Golden Girls, with an all-star cast including Betty White and MacGyver, uh, debuts this year. In probable action-adventure series and a favorite of Mythbusters. Almost nothing that he ever did survived Mythbusters. Um, this year in music, Shout, Shout, Let It All Out from Tears for Fears, We Are the World, uh, was a music artist raising money for African charity. In 2015 dollars, they pulled in about $138 million. Take On Me by AHA. I really liked that song, and I liked that video, too. It was uh, a young woman being drawn into a cartoon comic book. Uh, I think it was a pun, says Alex Shrugged. I thought it was fun, says Jack Spierko. And Material Girl, Madonna impersonates Marilyn Monroe. This year in video games, Paperboy is released. The controller is a bicycle handlebar. Uh, he says he is tenuously associated with this game. I liked that game. Ghosts and Goblins is released. Uh, my daughter did beta testing on the PC version. Uh, Nintendo releases Super Mario Brothers. The character of Princess Peach is introduced. And Commodore releases Amiga. Ladies and gentlemen, CGI is here. The Amiga is used for Babylon 5. Thanks, Tim Jensen. In other news, the ozone hole is discovered in Antarctica. I've seen various explanations, such as termite excreting methane to hairspray, says Alex Rugg. Blood donations are now screened for the AIDS virus. The public's in panic. Uh, yeah, that was a scary time uh, to think if you ever would have needed blood that you could have been given AIDS from, from donated blood, and it, it did happen to some people. And Coca-Cola changes its formula. Um, I'll tell you what. I remember that very, very well. It didn't go over well at all. There were videos of people pouring new Coke onto the pavement, uh, you know, like in parking lots and stuff like that. And I remember I took a class trip to Washington, D.C. in 1985. And uh, we went on an Amtrak train. It was a pretty cool adventure for kids in junior high school, right? So we went on an Amtrak train from um, from Jacksonville, Florida to Washington, D.C. It might have been 86 by then. No, it would have been 85. It would have been 85 because this, this all happened really, really fast. And that's when Coca-Cola Classic came out, when Coke was trying to repair the damage. And what they did is instead of just getting rid of new Coke, they brought out Coca-Cola Classic, which was the original Coke. And uh, people were very, very excited when we got on the train because it was the first time we had seen the new Coke Classic and you could get a Coke that was like a real Coke yet again. Um, it's amazing what we remember via, you know, very uh, vividly as kids. I haven't had a Coke in a long time, at least not without a little Jack Daniels or something like that in it. Uh, but back then, as a kid, you bet, I was into the Coke thing deep. 
Uh, Iran-Contra, contributed by Southpaw Ben, is the one I'm going to read, because I really remember this well. What does a senior official in the White House do when Congress refuses to fund militant groups in Nicaragua any further? Sell arms to the Iran in defense of its arms in defiance of its arms embargo, obviously. Originally intended as an operation to free seven American hostages from the Iranian-backed terrorist group Hezbollah, eventually it snowballed into a backdoor operation to continue funding the Contras operations in defiance of Congress. The deal continued for a while until senior Iranian official leaked the arrangement to Lebanese magazine which was the conf then confirmed by the Iranian government. Reagan addressed the scandal by saying that the purpose was to deal the well, purpose of the deal was to improve our US-Iranian relationship. The affair grew worse when Oliver North was discovered destroying and hiding documents related to the affair and claimed it was ordered to protect the lives of individuals involved in the affairs. All of those who were indicted or convicted in connection to the scandal were pardoned in the final days of George H.W. Bush's presidency. My take by Southpaw Ben. By lives, North meant livelihood, and by individuals, he meant himself and other senior officials involved. Also, the aftermath of this incident, incident helped solidify in the American political system the fact that high-ranking individuals implicated in scandals would be pardoned by the following president, most likely at the end of his term in office to avoid pushback from Congress, such as impeachment. This idea was first started when President Ford pardoned Nixon, despite him never being formally charged with any crimes. Uh, yeah, I tell you what, though. This dangerous little dance going on there with that pardon thing. Had, Reagan, or had Bush lost um, his bid for the election and a Democrat had taken over, it probably wouldn't have happened with a little pardon from them, huh? Remember, Remember that election? It was George Bush versus Michael Dukakis. There's a name you probably have forgotten long ago. Um, and Bush won that election handily. Uh, so he then turns around and pardons uh, North and other officials from Iran-Contra that was part of his administration as he was vice president under Reagan uh, four years later. So that you know stuff kind of went on for a while before that all went away, right? There was a, some years in there, because this is 85 when this whole thing broke, And, of course, Bush was in office until 92. That's seven years uh, because he wasn't president when this happened. Reagan was. So you might wonder, well, why wouldn't Reagan have pardoned North on his way out the door? Because it would have ba basically really hurt the, op the chances that, that Bush uh, Sr. would have been able to, uh, to, to win the election, I guess. But, you know, Reagan was still president. So why, why wouldn't Reagan do that, you know, after... Uh, after Bush's election. Well, you leave it for the next guy to do the uh, unseemly work. What may have happened, though, and probably would have happened, had had Dukakis won by some miracle, because it wasn't going to happen back in 1988, Reagan probably would have pardoned North and the other senior officials uh, at the end of his administration. So, like, if your side continues to win and you're in jail, you might stay there longer. That's part of this little process, huh? Now, I do remember this all really, really clearly. I was uh, in junior high by this time. Actually, I guess I started high school in 86, is right? Uh, so the year after this one. This is also the same year that we uh, moved from Florida back to Pennsylvania. And a lot of things in my life changed. And because of that, I think I have a little bit more remembrance of the things going on around me at the time because so much was going on in my life. What I remember about this is that it was much the same as it is today. The left viciously attacked North, and the right, you know, vehemently defend the right media vehemently defended him. And you know, 
here's my problem with that. Just switch the parties and then the, the same thing would happen. And that's why I say the more things change, the more they stay the same. There are people right now praising Trump, for instance, in his missile attack on Syria, on the Syrian airbase. In spite of the fact that airplanes were taken off like, you know, eight hours after the bombing, they didn't touch a runway, and, and Trump said he was going to stay out of Syria. But they're praising him. You know, it's fine. If, I, if you, you don't agree with me on what we should be doing in the Middle East, that's fine. But my question would be for those people that are praising Trump for doing that, would you be praising Hillary Clinton had she done the same thing? Now, the true state is swill. You'll notice the one time everybody seems to agree is when we're, we're killing people and blowing stuff up and spending money on, on, on you know, weapons that are you know, in the millions of dollars that don't even accomplish the real mission that they have. You notice that the left all of a sudden just kind of backed off of attacking Trump when he bombed a few things. Um, so the person that would say yes and, and be serious about it, fine. Well, the person that would say no, if they're honest, well, then why are you praising it when he does it? Or vice versa. The person that would have praised it if Clinton had won and done it, but will now condemn Trump. The identity politics are the problem. And we are so wrapped up in that as a country, it's very hard for us to separate that out and actually look at things logically and free of emotion and make a, a concise decision based on facts. And we have been programmed to think that way, and I'll save my thoughts for that for a later segment. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikram Tala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. All right, so uh, my lead off today is I am now on Patreon. And uh, I'm actually even figuring out how Patreon works and how I can deliver content to people that support me with Patreon through their platform. But I got the, ba the page basically set up and some basic ideas into it for, uh, for people that want to support us on Patreon. And I have a Patreon banner uh, now on the Survival Podcast main website. And I think I will... Uh, make sure that we start getting it into uh, YouTube videos as well, that people can support us that way. Part of me with Patreon feels this way. There are a lot of people that pay attention to what I do on YouTube that do not listen to my podcast and are not going to listen to my podcast. They're not podcast people. They're YouTube people. And there's you know everybody watches YouTube videos and, and some people listen to podcasts, so there's overlap there. But there are people that are very much into like the YouTube thing that they don't, they don't listen to a single podcast. Uh, so part of that is I'm creating content that's going out there that, that there are people that appreciate and may want to support us. You know, with something you know really affordable, like a dollar a month or something. Like it's twelve bucks a year. And if people want to support the work we do, that actually gives me incentive to do more video content. 
So my initial plan for Patreon was to simply just do it for YouTube. But then I realized like ignoring survival podcasts uh, would be dumb, and you shouldn't do that. And I'm always on entrepreneurs and saying, why do you hate money? Why do you hate If you don't give people a way to do business with you, they won't. And then you'll have no money, and you'll be sad, and you'll cry. But it's because you hate money. You're literally repelling money by not allowing it to come to you. I've been on some people's websites, and like I see what they're doing, and I'm like, I actually want to buy from you or support you. And you're there on every page like with your wallet, like shoving it at the screen, going, please take my money. And you can't figure out how to do business with them. So I don't want to be that person. I also want to be able to advise people to use this thing. And I tend not to advise people very much other than, hey, you might want to go take a look at this uh, with things unless I have experience with them. So I need some experience with it. So here's what I've come up for rewards so far. I've come up with a dollar, a three dollar, and a five dollar. And uh, here's what I've come up with for what you get. A uh, dollar a month is just basically a hearty thank you. This is for folks that are not looking for a reward but just want to support the work we do at TSP on our YouTube channel and outreach for Nine Mile Farm and Granddaddy's Gun Club. You can also watch our videos using ad blockers guilt-free, knowing that you're still supporting our efforts. So a lot of people you know, don't turn off their ads on YouTube because they want to support their, their favorite content producers. Well, if you do a buck Patreon to your top six or seven, then your buck a month is probably more than they're getting off of your ads. I'll, I'll just leave it that way. Uh, $3 a month will be insider and co-creator. At this level, we will allow you to vote in our Patreon-only polls about our new videos on, YouTube, on our YouTube channel and make suggestions for new videos and content that will be considered before the rest of our followers. So again, I'm kind of sticking to the YouTube side of things here with this. Uh, and then for $5 uh, or more uh, a month, we will do uh, a thing called Walks with Jack. So in addition to the perks from the previous levels, I will make a video every month that will be me walking around our property or perhaps someplace we're visiting. Topics will include things happening on the property, like our public videos, but we'll also discuss philosophy, business tactics, and current events and more. This will be like spending an hour with me once a month learning about how we actually run our various businesses. So it's going to be really geared more toward the person that wants to, uh, to have a little bit of entrepreneurship in their life. And it's going to be like an extra podcast in video without all of the fluff and buff around it. And it will be kind of... You know, taking in the, the, the property at the same time. Those will probably run 30 minutes to an hour. I'll shoot them as 10-minute video segments and use the YouTube editor to splice them together. They'll be published on YouTube as uh, as videos that are unlisted, so you can't get to them unless you know the link, And they'll, but they'll be provided to our, our Patreon members at 5 bucks or more. My thought is, what else would you guys want? I mean, I look at this way. If you did 5 bucks, that's the same as the MSB. is 5 bucks a month or $50 a year. So you, if you were an MSB member and doing that, you're basically paying double. So one of the things I thought would be if you participate at the $5 level, I'll do a discount of, you know, 20 bucks off MSB if you're an MSB member also, or maybe even more. And I've thought about doing a $10 a month level one, but I got to figure out what would, you know, what would you pay $10 a month for from me that I can do consistently that my busy ass life won't get in the way of and it won't, because once somebody's paying you for something, you, to me, are required to do it. You know, if I had like one person, I might go, yeah, here's your 10 bucks back to you. There's not enough interest in this. But, you know, once you have, you know, enough people to be putting up, you know, combined a couple hundred bucks a month and you've committed to do something, you need to do it. I've thought about doing like a, 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 an online hangout once a month for people at that level where you can get online like a video chat where everybody like a Google hangout or something like that. I don't know what platform I would use. I don't know if that's enough to, to incentivize people to that level. 
Um, but I'd like to add a $10 perk, $10 a month perk. And if there's interest in something, I'll do it. If not, I won't. Now, here's the other thing that I, I kind of thought this would be good for for this audience specifically. There's a lot of you guys that I hear from like, yeah, we, you know, I, I help you out or whatever, but I, I'm not going to do 50 bucks a year because I don't really see the value in the discounts or whatever. If you like this show and you want to support our content, you can just do a buck a month. You know, and, and then you're just, you're just doing it to help or even three bucks a month. Now, I'd say at that price, you might want to just think MSB because, you know, you get the discounts and it's five bucks a, a month. So it's only two more. But, you know, if that's what you wanted to do, uh, I'd appreciate it. And, uh, I, I kind of wanted to put this out there because we do so many things beyond TSP. You know, building and, and developing Granddaddy's Gun Club is an example of something that, you know, that's that's its own community, and hopefully that's a contribution to the world in time. We're, remember, we're doing our first shoot in Corsicana, Texas next month. Uh, we still have some room. So, you know, there's a link in today's show notes for the Granddaddy's Gun Club uh, first shoot. If We'd love to have you come out and hang out with us in Corsicana for a couple days. Um, like that type of thing. The YouTube channel, I, I looked today, and I was kind of blown away myself. Um, at how many videos I've done on YouTube. 700 videos. 700 videos. So I think there's this, this platform out there, all this residual stuff that could be, you know, monetized. And if it's a few hundred bucks a month, it's a few hundred bucks a month. And my plan is, because of this whole fiasco with the AdSense thing and YouTube and all, if this can make me three times what I make on AdSense on YouTube, I'm going to go through and demonetize all my videos. I'm just going to take all the advertising off of them and just get out of that world. Um, it's about 300 bucks a month right now, and I get it for doing nothing except clicking a button when I publish my videos, so I'm not going to turn it down. But if I can, if I can get enough interest from the YouTube community to you know, heavily replace that income, then I'll just shut it off. I'll give it up, because that way you're not watching videos in the mid you know, advertisements in the middle of my videos. And frankly, I'm not having people advertise on my on my YouTube videos that I don't really like. Uh, I just found out today how to how to block some of them, so I blocked Monsanto. I don't want their money. I don't want them associated with my brand. And there's not a lot of videos that I see or advertisements I see on my videos that I'm really like, yeah, I really am proud of that sponsor being on my video. There's a few that have been okay. I've seen some NRA ads. I'm fine with that. Uh, some from Bushnell for their scopes and stuff. That's fine, but. In the end, I'd rather be direct with the people that are receiving my content. And uh, with the number of subscribers I have, you know, 300 bucks, it's not much uh, to, to come up to. So I'm going to try that. Any of you that are using Patreon that have any advice for me, I'd love to hear it. Uh, I'd like to actually do more content for this show on Patreon. Not like, hey, here's my Patreon and come give me your money. No, I mean how you can use it. So part of why I'm doing this is if I can skin this thing, then a lot of you guys that are out there building these YouTube channels and all, you are better off doing this early than late. There's a lot of momentum when you're building something and people are coming along for the ride with you that once they're like, oh, he's fine now. He's got 30,000 subscribers. They don't understand. Well, that 30,000 subscribers results in two to $300 a month. That's, that's not enough to actually go all in on YouTube. Now, I'm not going to go all in on YouTube because this is my all in right here on the podcast. But some of you want to. And some of you want to go all in on other platforms. And I think this is a tool that will help enable doing that that makes it... See, here's the thing. I believe in the what's called the larger community. And that if you're on Patreon, 
sure, you're giving up something to them, but you're not hosting your own membership site. You don't have to do updates. Everything's right there, and it's easy with a GUI, graphic user interface. Very easy. I set everything up today in about uh, 30 minutes. and got the whole thing up and running. Um, and I believe it'll get better. But I also believe that once you're successful at Patreon, you're going to reach other people in Patreon looking for people like you, and that's the value that they bring. And I think that many of you guys out there with ideas for content generation could benefit from this. So I'm going to do what I can to help myself because I don't have a problem stating that what I put out I believe has value. But I also want to help you guys. And I think many of you that are, are struggling with monetization could use this. And with some crea creativity, might be able to come up with some pretty cool perks. So I'd love to hear your ideas on that for me and for anybody. Next, I have a quail recipe. Yep, a quail recipe. This comes from John. John said, here's the link to an awesome quail recipe we tried the other day from Beer and Brewing Magazine. It's not an ex an exactly paleo, but hey, we got to live a little sometimes. My wife and I and kids and I loved it. It was very easy. I did take the breasts off the bone and separated the drumsticks. Our kids love the little drumsticks. I uh, thought you might uh, like something other than salt, pepper, and garlic on the grill. Give this a try. And it's a recipe for honey sriracha uh, chicken fried quail. And uh, here's the uh, ingredients. Six bone quail, one cup of sriracha sauce, one cup of buttermilk, oil for frying, one cup of Belgian triple, that's a beer, so one cup of beer, uh, one egg, and two uh, cups of flour and salt. So cut each quail in half lengthwise so that each piece is a breast and a thigh and a leg. In a large bowl, combine the sriracha sauce and buttermilk and marinate the quail in this mixture for five or six hours or overnight. I'm going to stop there. I agree with John about removing, if, even if you leave the bone on the, uh, on the uh, breast, you, know, you cut the quail in half, cut the little leg quarter off. So the, he says drumstick, but it's really a leg and thigh. And, and go into quarters even if you don't debone the breast when you're doing any kind of uh, uh, frying with, uh, with, with quail. It just, I've done it some other ways. And then it says, in a, large, in a fryer or large pot, preheat frying hole to 325. In a mixing bowl, combine the beer and the egg, place flour in a large shallow dish, remove the quail from the marinade, and rinse under cold water, season with salt. Dip the quail in the egg mixture and dredge in flour. Fry at 325 for 5 or 6 minutes until golden brown. Drain in paper towels. To make your sriracha honey glaze, use a quarter cup of sriracha sauce and a half cup of honey. Combine sriracha sauce and honey in a large bowl. Toss the fried quail in a honey sriracha sauce to serve. Okay, so... That's totally not paleo, uh, but it sounds damn good. And the whole point is it's kind of like an orange chicken on a, on a Chinese restaurant, except done well, um, where the, the sticky glaze not only sticks to the fried, crispy, crunchy crust, but kind of soaks into it. And that sounds good, too. But I can paleo this up and put it back on the grill pretty easily. This is what I would do to, uh, to make my own version of this. I would make a marinade using um, Thai chili-infused oil. So um, I'll just put a link to the uh, Thai chili peppers that I've reviewed in the past, and there's a, there's a, a recipe for the chili oil. Uh, and I would use that chili oil as a marinade for the quail. Let it sit in that, and you don't have to use that much of it because you put all your quail pieces in a Ziploc bag and then put it in there, push the air out, kind of massage it, flip it every few hours, and let it marinate in there for a, a day. So do this the day before. To that marinade, though, the, the, the chili oil, I would probably add some soy sauce, 
some rice wine vinegar, a little bit of mirin, and a little bit of mustard. And we're going to take that and put it in a jar and shake it up with the mustard, and we're going to look at it. So we're going to use a little squirt of mustard. We don't want a lot of mustard flavor in this. We're using the mustard as an emulsifier. Okay, So we're going to shake that up and, and set it down and wait a couple minutes. And if it doesn't separate, it's emulsified. That means the, the oil and the non-oil ingredients, the more water-based ingredients, are now held together in suspension without separating. So the, the marinade can actually do its job. If it separates, a little bit more mustard, shake it again. Keep doing that until it gets emulsified. Put that on my, uh, on my quail. Let that sit overnight. Then the next day, take it out. Put it on paper towels to drain. And let it. And then once it's drained off, put it on like a little rack or something like that so it stays so air can get underneath it. Stick it back in the refrigerator for at least an hour. What will happen is the marinade will kind of get sticky. Okay, It's going to kind of get to where when there's smoke passing over, it's going to kind of grab and hold on to the smoke. Then we're going to take that to a charcoal grill with a good handful of moist wood chips to the side, just to get a little bit of smoke. We're not smoking, just get a little smoke flavor. We're actually going to cook this over hot coals, but with that smoke going at the same time. We're going to cook it till it's done, which you're really going to tell mostly by the look. For a sriracha honey glaze, we can just stick to what they're doing here. Now, there's sugar from the honey, but just some sriracha sauce and some honey mixed together, um, and they're doing a half cup of honey to a quarter cup sriracha sauce, I don't even think you would really need to go with that much of it because now we're much more to a light basting. So a couple tablespoons of each, maybe, or, or four tablespoons of sriracha. I'm oh, sorry, four tablespoons of honey to about um, two tablespoons of sriracha. And maybe add a little bit of soy sauce to that. I bet you that would be probably equally as good. Now, there's no beer in this. We could have put some beer in our marinade if we wanted to there. There would have been no problem adding that to our marinade, again, with the the, uh, the mustard for emulsion. If you're going to do beer and a, a marinade that you're going to emulsify by shaking it in, a, in, a, in a, a jar, remember it has bubbles and what happens when you shake it. So bigger jar, like twice the size jar you think you would need, and then vent it a little bit at a time and then keep doing it until it fully emulsifies. Another way to do that, though, when you're going to cook with beer, Take the beer, like say you're going to use a cup of beer in a marinade. The day before you cook, you know, pour that cup of beer into an open glass or uh, an open jar and just sit it in the refrigerator opened. It'll be flat by the, the day you make it. Or you can leave it out on the countertop. It's not going to go bad overnight. And let it go flat, and that way when you emulsify it, you don't deal with as much foaming up. So there's a couple different ideas for quail that are a little bit different than what we've talked about in the past. Uh, and we're going to stay on cooking here for a minute. I kind of themed this show out today uh, by happenstance. It's just the order things came in. It says, Jack, I'm looking to switch from a very used and on its last legs charboil gas grill to a Weber kettle grill or a green egg, and I'm looking for tips to swap over. I've done very little in the way of charcoal cooking and really only have my little smoky Joe. My wife doesn't like a very smoky flavor, so we, what are cooking techniques to not get heavy smoke? Can the Weber do most of what the green egg can do? I buy a lot of charcoal for, I can buy a lot of charcoal for the one-eighth price point. Lastly, I've heard you mention the smokinator for the kettle grill. I'm wondering how well it works if I wanted to smoke salmon, etc. Uh, thanks, and thanks for the tips a while back on the spicy mead. If you like, I'd be willing to ship you a bottle. Chris, I didn't notice that when I screened this. Please ship me a bottle of your spicy mead. 
If you just go to the survival podcast dot or go to nine mile you can get my home address. Everybody can find it if they really wants to. Go to nine mile dot farm and, and click on contact us and you'll see our address and you can ship it there. Um anyway, um so let's start off with this. There's a lot of questions here really. So let's start out just with choosing between the Weber and the and the big green egg. Can the Weber do everything that the big green egg can? Not hardly. Not hardly. It can, but not as well and not as easy and not as set it and forget it, especially with slow cooking. Slow cooking, smoking, things like that. The, the insulation of that big green egg is awesome. Yet I do not own one, and I own a Weber Kettle Grill. Why? Because for $150, bucks, it's one of the best charcoal grills you can get your hands on, and it can do a lot. And I would personally say, since this is a new thing for you, get a Weber Kettle Grill. I'll put a link in the show notes to the one I recommend on Amazon today. And you can have it in a box and have it put together. And you won't even finish one beer. It's that easy to put it together. So um, I really recommend that. And the reason is because if you decide later that you want a big green egg, you won't mind having a big green egg and a Weber kettle grill. And if you decide you want to go back to gas cooking for some reason or another, you won't mind having a Weber kettle grill. If you decide you, this isn't for you and you spend the small fortune and sell a kidney to be able to buy the big green egg, you're going to be upset. And I, you know, I actually think I might buy like a knockoff version of the egg and save a couple hundred bucks eventually because I do so much outdoor cooking. But the truth is, I have a really nice small, um, cause I just wanted a smaller footprint, um, infrared gas grill. And a Weber kettle grill. I can see them both out of my window right now, out of my office, because I pushed them off the deck for some cleaning up. And uh, nine times out of ten, even though it's faster to start that gas grill, when I'm going to cook outside, I use my Weber kettle. And it does just about anything that I want it to. Um, as far as your wife not liking a heavy smoked flavor, you don't get a heavy smoked flavor cooking over charcoal. You just don't. You get a little bit of a kind of a smoky thing going on, but not much. It's not going to be like your brisket or whatever, you know, the, you know, the, something that actually was smoked with a smoke ring on it and a bark on it and, and what have you. So you don't really need to worry about that. The biggest thing that you need to do, though, then, is I would cook with charcoal over wood, though some wood you can get a really nice fire out of and not get a lot of smoke flavor infused, especially cooking with the, 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 the grill open, so you're cooking over hot flame. Uh, and then just finishing you know, indirect heat and, and, and putting the lid on, um, you're still not going to get huge smoke flavor. You get more with wood. So start with charcoal. It's easier to control. Number two, when you're, when you're cooking on a charcoal grill, especially when you, like, some of this is going to be like, duh, Jack, but again, some people have not cooked on charcoal grills. So some basics. Number one, never have the charcoal cover more than 50% of the space available on the bottom of the grill. And this is one of the really nice things um, about my new favorite accessory for the Weber Kettle Grill. I was a big fan of the Smokinator. It is a good tool. But the slow and sear pretty much curb stomps the Smokinator. It is better. It works better. It's more versatile. It does cost more, but I think it's definitely worth the additional uh, cost. It is... Uh, awesome. I have a, a whole review on it and I have some ribs that I smoked on it. It was the first time I ever used it for smoking. They came out good. They could have come out better, 
But I was learning, you know, as I went, uh, kind of on the fly, first time ever using a, a piece of equipment like this. I, I really recommend that you step up if you're going to go to the Slow and Sear, get the Slow and Sear Plus. And the big difference there is it has a, a great bottom on it. And when I say great, I don't mean good. I mean a, a great for a bottom instead of being wide open. It keeps the coals a little more stable. It makes your temperature control a little bit easier. If you just want to smoke with your accessory, nothing wrong with a Smokinator. costs about half the price, so go ahead and get a Smokinator. If you want more versatility, the Slow and Sear is very, very heavy duty. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to last as long or longer than your grill. It's not going to burn out on you ever. And it is great for what I just said. You, f you put your charcoal in it, and you don't add the water, and you don't use it as a smoker, and you just get your charcoal, and that's your hot zone. And it's, yeah, you can buy the little baskets or whatever, or I used to just stack some fire bricks in there to keep my charcoal from falling over to one side. But since I have this for smoking, and it just lives in the grill, whenever I'm cooking on the Weber Kettle Grill now, I just put my coals in there and light them, so it's d double duty, I guess is, is my point. Um, smoking with the Weber kettle, it's going to have a learning curve. It's going to take you a little longer. Most of the time when I smoke, really smoke, I use my Bradley electric smoker. Because you stick the pucks in it, you set the temperature, you walk away, you come back in two and a half hours, you've got the smoke infused to your meat, and you decide how you want to finish it. And you just you can't mess it up. It always works. It's an automated technology. It's electric. You can set it where you want it. It holds beautifully. It's awesome. So that's my go-to for smoking. So would I buy a slow and sear or a smokinator today now that I have a Bradley smoker? I have to say I probably wouldn't. I also own a very large sidebox smoker, so I've kind of got that nailed down. For the person that wants to be able to smoke occasionally, the Weber kettle's good. The egg would be better. And a I think a dedicated smoking tool like a Bradley electric smoker is best. It's just, yeah, you got to buy the pucks and all, or a dedicated sidebox smoker. That's Those are like you're going to be smoking whole briskets and stuff like that. doesn't sound like you're going to do that because you got a wife that's not keen on all the smoke flavor. Now, on things like smoking salmon, um, the best smoked salmon is cold smoked. And I think you can, you can do somewhat of a cool smoking with the, the big green egg, with like a big thing of ice water bath thing underneath that I've seen Bobby Flay do a couple times on his show. I don't really know how well that works, so I'm not going to speak too deeply to it. I guess that you could, you know, run the slow and sear or the smokinator and put a big tub of ice underneath the thing I to kind of bring the temperature down. But to me, cold smoking is something totally different. And if I was going to smoke salmon... Even if I was going to cook it to finish it, I would cold smoke it, and I would be back to my Bradley smoker, and I have uh, the cold smoke attachment for it, which basically is just a tube that hooks onto the box, and your pucks sit over here, and they they're, they smoke, and then you don't turn your heat on inside the smoker at all, and you're just putting cold smoke through. And, and that's how I would do that. I have smoked fish on a grill uh, with without even using a smokinator, so it's definitely doable. Again, I'd be back to the slow and sear. I'd use a, a small amount of charcoal would be one way to get a little bit more control, so a, a smaller amount of charcoal. And instead of what they tell you to do with the slow and sear, I would use heavily soaked wood chips. And I'd burn my coals down to a nice level, and I would go as far away with indirect heating as possible. The only thing is with a grill like the Weber Kettle, 
you know, the, the, the kettle's high and then it covers down. So your heat actually transfers not just from below, but from above. So as you move off to the one side, you're actually closer to the lid and you get some more residual heat down on top of it. So you'd have to play with that. But I would personally cold smoke salmon. And my favorite way to do salmon actually on a grill is um, on cedar planks. I, I think that's, you know, salmon to me is not efficient. We need to spend a lot, unless we're doing it for long-term storage or something, we don't have to spend a lot of time with. Right, so just doing it on soaked cedar planks and cooking, do the cedar plank cooking method. You can Google that. That's how I would go about doing uh, my salmon on, on there. For some advice, though, on just in general, again, no more than half of the area, and no, not, don't pile it all the way up really high. You don't need as much charcoal as you think you do, and please let your charcoal be ready before you cook. In spite of knowing better, I have been kind of like, I'm hungry, hurry up, from the wife once in a while with friends over and, and, and like just doing burgers or whatever. And fine, oh, fine, you put them on before the coals are really nicely white, gnashed over and kind of settled in. And you always get flare-ups and you get problems and, and things. So don't do that. Make sure your coals are really ready to go. And, uh, and, and then another thing I can suggest is get yourself a spray bottle with some water in it and keep it out by your grill. And if you start getting flare-ups, just give it a couple shots of water and, and, and dampen it down. That'll help you control flare-ups. Anyway, those are my thoughts on, on grilling that way. Let's, uh, take another one. Uh, this one comes from Joseph. Joseph says, what is your take on the Akasha project? An Ethereum-based decentralized social network. Details. The ideas of a social network which isn't moderated by a central company like Facebook has an appeal. The privacy seems fairly robust. An anonymous account plus Tor or VPN could be very effective. The premise is that people can spend microtransactions of Ether to like content, converting media posts directly to revenue without need for an advertiser. I think this has potential. Most people wouldn't hesitate to spend one-tenth of a cent on liking a post or video, especially if you had no ads or sponsors. But there are many content producers out there who get millions of likes on a piece of content. Unlike YouTube, there's nobody who will change the rules, as you recently explained in the AdSense YouTube model. I look at Regen Ag Facebook page, and I see the occasional buy-sell-trade request for plants and various other items. Under this system, you could trade likes to make a sale, as they translate directly to money. That alone is huge. If cryptocurrency was tied to Facebook lights, the currency would be rock solid. The micropayment method for posting would be enough to deter most spammers, at least early on. It could also cut down on trolls and the crazies who will rant emotionally in response to every post. They'll pay to post, but with few likes will not recover the cost and tax themselves out of the system with their own nonsense. Meanwhile, the productive posts will, in theory, receive a surplus from likes Uh, of their content or responses to it. It becomes an economy of thought where insight is rewarded and leverages the inevitable bullshit that plagues social media to finance that reward. This is a client application, no central server, so it's not browser-based. Fair warning, it's an early alpha, so it's slow. Speed increases with the number of users, and most of the planned features are not implemented yet. They're dealing with pay play money right now it could be cool to set a tsp group going there it's it, if it, if just for prestige of being among the first and likely one of the largest as people now have a few places to go your large community of people who are open to cryptocurrency like privacy like community cooperation they could see the platform in the early days and have measurable influence over a ton 
tone of the entire project. It's at, located at akasha.world. I'm still just playing around with it. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, Dingo on Akasha. Okay, so I did download this client. I do think this type of model, there's going to be a giant that will rise as the next social media giant that will use this type of a model. Will it be the Akasha model where it's completely decentralized and you have to download a client and you're running, instead of being in your Firefox browser or Safari or whatever, you have to be on their client to do it? Uh, or will it be something like Steam where it's just basically like, it's like redoing Reddit or Dig, except people get to pay each other with Steam by how many likes you get or whatever. And the, the, the deal is, I don't know who's going to win. I am going to play with this a little more. I will set up a TSP group on it, and people can join if they want to. I don't know how much traction it'll get, because you do have to download this clunky client, and right now the only thing you can actually do is put in text messages. Um, you can't even do a picture from what I've seen so far, let alone a video or something like that. I, I don't know if they're still using Play Money or not. Uh, it, when I logged in, it has to basically use my computer resources, do a little bit of mining to basically get me in the door. So I think what they're trying to do here is maybe some sort of pool-like mining of an Ethereum-backed token. So with Ethereum, uh, unlike Bitcoin, you can have a derivative of Ethereum. It's actually designed for that. So Akasha could have Akasha tokens or whatever. And I don't know if they're doing that or straight Ethereum. And so if the resources of the network are actually mining like in a mining pool then there's a then they could be distributed to everybody that's active or held in like a vault that as you like people you're giving them money but it's not costing you anything that seems like what they might be trying to do i like the uh the idea of that but i don't think it's very practical I think what would be practical is to make it a paid service. And I think right, a lot, right, right away that would, that would cut down on trolls. I mean, charging trolls makes them go away. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot because as, 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 uh, Joe, who sent me this is saying, you could have it be to like a tenth of, a like is a tenth of a cent. So if I get ten likes today, I made a penny. Well, people would just basically charge their account, like let's say the way you do Skype. So I know that everybody's Skype is free. To me, Skype's not 100% free. Because occasionally I call people on Skype that have a landline or a cell phone. And so I just prepay and I'll buy $25 worth of time. And that lasts me like most of a year. And so you could just charge your account up so that you could give likes or make, you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's a cost to comment. Maybe there's a cost to comment. Maybe it's also a tenth of a cent. And if you think about it though, a person that did, you know, 20 comments and 20 likes in a day, what's it going to cost them? And the answer is 40 cents. So if it's something that low, then I think if people won't pay to use a technology, they probably don't value it. And I remember a while back, like way, way back, Facebook was kicking around the idea, at least floating in a little side conversations what if we charged you to use facebook would you you know would you keep using it or would you quit and the outrage and the uproar it was just it's obscene and i wonder today if you could 
have Facebook free of advertising and manipulation. If Facebook said, you know, all the filtering that we're doing, we won't do it. We'll, we'll let you, based on your affinity. It's like, for instance, when I put out a post on uh, the Survival Podcast Facebook page, a couple thousand to three thousand people generally will see it. In spite of the fact that a hundred thousand people said they want to see the content for my page, and now they want to sell me access to my own people. Right? That's digital sharecropping for you. But what if you had this price you could pay Facebook? And it, what it would do is you'd never see an advertisement ever again. You'd never see anybody's bullshit you didn't want to see. And the things that you said you wanted to see actually showed up. And it was, I don't know, five bucks a month. How many people that like Facebook would pay the five bucks a month? Even if you didn't take away the free option. Do you kind of see where I'm, I'm going here? Now, what if... In addition to that, basically Facebook would say, you know how we share information with the government? Yeah, we won't share yours. Now, they're not going to do that. But all of a sudden, might you start to say, hey. Now, here's the question. Why would you stay there? And this is the challenge. If you can answer that question, this is the challenge for the next supergiant. The answer is because everybody else is already there. And not just the people you argue with, not just the content providers like me that you follow. Your mom's on Facebook. Your dad's on Facebook. Your kids are on Facebook. You know, your aunts, your uncles. When they, when they post a picture of little Johnny at his baseball game, you see it. And it's centralized in one place where you're getting news, you're following people that you like, you're following family. It's become a default. That's what's made Facebook so powerful. It's also what makes it vulnerable. But but you know, don't underestimate the power that it has. It's become a go-to for people. And the problem with leaving it to go to one of these other networks, no matter what it is, is all of those people that you care about aren't there and getting them to come with you. So this thing, in its current form, will fail to get the people to come with you. It's clunky. It's Now, if they can streamline it and make it work really, really good, and then it ends up being just an app on your phone, and it works just like Facebook, except you're a lot more anonymous and secure. They don't give information to the government. It's, it's basically peer-to-peer -peer resource sharing, and there's some sort of pay-to-play model It might be the next supergiant. It might be the next thing like this to fall flat on its ass. Someone's going to do this. The key is who. It has to work very easy. It has to be intuitive. Say what you want about Facebook. person shows up on Facebook for the very first time, sets up an account. It is extremely intuitive. It's not hard. It's not complicated. Some people make it out to be, but it's not. It's easy. Find your friends. And when you go to look for friends, they're there. Set up a group. It's easy. And that's it has to be that turnkey easy for one of these to succeed. I want to talk a little bit about the model, though. This model of paying for value from content creators or people sharing information or something like that. Let's look at it this way. Say that you're part, you're on one of these networks, and it's it's also localized, so you can find people local to you, and you're new to the area, 
and you say, I'm looking for a really good pizza place, and please do not tell me Mr. Jim's, Papa John's, Pizza Hut, or Domino's. I want authentic pizza. I moved here from New York, and I can't find authentic pizza. Who knows of a good place? And some guy comes on and says, hey, Vinny's down on the corner of so-and-so and so-and-so. He's great. He's out of New York, and he, you know, he loves this stuff. I'm from there, too, and this is the only thing like it in town. And you, you, so you, th that happens all the time for free right now. But if you were on a platform that allowed you to go, hey, man, thanks, here's a penny, might you do it? Now, I want to talk about this in a way that makes it's going to make some people maybe uncomfortable here. But in my quest to find myself spiritually, as I was growing up, when I say growing up now, I'm talking early 20s, I read a lot of different things. One of my favorite authors was Richard Bach. Uh, Illusions, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, stuff like that. Another author I liked, but I liked at a little bit of a distance, because some of his stuff was just nut job, was a guy named James Redfield, who wrote a book called The Celestine Prophecy. He wrote three more books that were sequels to it, and they progressively got worse. And even the first one, Celestine Prophecy, was... Too far out there by the time you got to the end of it. But a lot of my philosophy of life from like the first half is, is pretty dead solid. And it talks about things like control dramas, how some people are poor me's, some people are intimidators, some people are interrogators, some people are aloofs, and the energy dynamics of human interaction. That was dead solid. But another thing that it talks about is an emerging economy. Now understand, this book was written, I believe, in 92 or maybe 94. This is this is pre-modern internet, and it's definitely pre-anything like we're talking about today. And he says something in this book that at the time, there was not the technology to make it practical. And it was that we would take a new view of something religious people have called tithing. And it's it's quite prophetic when we look at what's going on right now. And there's a big movement toward this type of a, of a, a sharing economy. And the, the, the concept was that when you met somebody and they gave you something of value as far as information, you would give them money. You would, you would, we would start to see the value in, in our fellow human beings. And when we were lost, the guy says, like, well, you know, right down the road, there's a, and, and he tells you how to get out of your jam, you'd say, here's a buck. And right now, you know what would happen. If, if, if I was lost and you didn't know who I was, I'm just some random guy, some random ass clown, and, and you saw me kind of on the side of the road you know, with my phone with no signal on it, and I looked and you stopped and said, dude, what's the matter? I said, I'm lost. My phone's not working. There's no signal here. I'm trying to get you know the hell out of here, and I'm trying to find my way back to the interstate. And you knew how to get back to the interstate. And you said, I'll go down here, take a left, go five miles down that way, then you'll see this road, make a right, just keep going, you hit the interstate. And I said, man, thanks a lot for that. Here's a dollar. What would you say to me? Dude, I don't need a dollar for that. I don't need a dollar for that. Because it's expected that we would help each other. But there's a lot of things that are customary that aren't necessary that have become part of who we are as human beings. Thank you. What's the next word out of your mouth when I say thank you? You're welcome. Do we need the you're welcome? I've extended a thank you. Why is there a you're welcome? And why don't I say thank you a sec? Well, thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you again. Why is there a, a point where we've finished that? Where that manners is that that's done? 
because there has to be a practical stopping point. And it's when someone does something nice for you it's, or gives you a gift, it is reasonable to say thank you. But the you're welcome, it's pretty much implied, but yet it's become customary, is, is one example of that. It may become quite customary to tip people who help you or provide you with valuable information in very small amounts. Because, see, our day-to-day -day interaction, you would never develop a true economy off of Redfield's version of this. You just don't talk to enough people on a daily basis. You don't have enough value. But when you're putting out information, and there's millions of eyeballs that can potentially see it, the idea that maybe a hundred of the people that day would find it to be worth a dollar is actually pretty high. Like, not I'm going to give you a dollar a month like Patreon, just like, holy crap, I never knew that. Here's a dollar. Holy crap. This guy just posted that there's a sale on more knives, like I did on Facebook. Now, yeah, I made a pretty good return on that because a lot of people bought knives. There was a big sale right before Christmas. Huge. I didn't even put it on the blog. I just threw it on Facebook. Hey, Amazon has 50% off all these. And it was, it was amazing how many people responded to that. But how many people might have, if it would have been a different scenario, there's no Amazon affiliates now. We're out of the world of digital sharecropping. And it's, it's, so I'm not even married to Amazon now. And I happen to go out and find a great deal on Mora Knives from some third-party liquidator. And I say, hey, these are available here right now. And some guy goes out and buys like 10 of them and saves like eight bucks a piece, which is like what people were doing on this sale. So he goes, I just saved 80 bucks and got these things I wanted anyway. You know, the guy that gave, here's five bucks. Or here's a dollar, here's a dime, here's a quarter. Especially if it's all automated into a sharing economy that's building upon itself. And continuing to develop and derive value. Because I do think some, some level of being able to fund your account is a good idea. But being able to exchange that which was given to you is a good idea. And having a resource system that actually shares resources, the mind pool, to continue to add value to the total economy. To create more value. To sell at a discount. If you're a member of this network, even though our tokens trade for... X on the outside, you can get them for X minus 1 on the inside if you're active. So now they're basically selling the currency that they've created into circulation at a discount to people that are active and engaged and helping to mine it by furthering its value by growing the network. This has all the potential to be that. It also has the, the potential to be a big flop because right now it doesn't work. But everything has to start somewhere. And it seems like they have some good developers working on it. But someone's going to do this. And I believe kind of Redfield's prophecy within a book about prophecy will come to pass. And it, there will be this new sharing economy that will be based on trading value for value. And some of that will be concrete. I need a ride. I can pick you up. I will charge 20 bucks to take you there. I will give you $20 worth of ether. Bing. Okay. And then the, there's going to be apps that are going to be like Uber that's going to, my phone will pay your phone when I get out of the car. It'll know that I've arrived at my destination. So it will do contract control for two parties, right? That kind of thing's going to happen. But this, hey, I liked your article. Here's, here's 50 cents. Hey, that changed the decision today. Because what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen in an economy like that. Someday, somebody that doesn't think they're important at all is going to post something. Somebody's going to see it, and it's going to save them a fortune 
or pain, and that person's going to be well-to-do, and they're going to give them a thousand bucks. And it may change the way we look at charity and the way we look at things like tithing, because now we actually can say, I am helping the people that I feel are helping me. And I think there's a lot of value to that. So I know I went long with this, but that, that's how I see this all playing out on a larger scale. Whether or not it's going to be a caution, I have no idea. Here's a bit of a kind of, I almost didn't do this one because it's not really very concise. Uh, but this comes from Aaron. Aaron says, I was thinking about what it means to be a podcaster. What do podcasters listen to? Do you listen to podcasts? I've liked what you've taught us about technology and the warnings about future automation. Perhaps you'd be willing to go into media manipulation and how we are being marketing and so, how we are being, and I think it means how we are being manipulated. Marketing and social media seem to steer everything now. Sam Harris talks a lot about AI on his podcast and its impact on humanity. I don't really agree with his politics, but he's compelling. You might really like the podcast he did with Tristan Harris. This is number 71 with technology. What is technology doing to us? And I just didn't have time to listen to it. So what do I listen to? Um, I listen to various podcasts. I, pro I probably not like most of my listeners that listen to my show often. I'll listen to Vin Armani's show once in a while. Uh, I'll even listen to complete crackpots like Alex Jones from time to time just to see what they're doing. Um, I will usually put Fox News on at some point during the day for about 15 minutes. It's about all I can handle. But it gives me the rhythm of what the mainstream's talking about. With It makes me want to kill myself. But it doesn't make me want to kill myself immediately, like listening to MSNBC would. Um, I listen to a lot of YouTube videos. Um, when I'm doing research, if I come across a video, what I'll do is I'll pull that video up, I'll hit play, and I really don't watch it, the kind of videos I'm talking about. I'll listen to it while I'm doing other things. Um, I uh, could just, I guess, pull up my, uh, my phone and look at my podcast app. Why don't we do that? Here's what's in my feed for um, my podcasts. Um, I have the Building Community Today podcast because a listener is running that and, and recently sent it in. I usually subscribe to things, so I'm not going to read all of them. But a Vin Armani show, it's just done. I don't know how they come up with the order here. Permaculture Voices, uh, Modern Deist podcast, Deism podcast, Shamanic Freedom Radio, Sustainable Living podcast, um, Got Me Live, Homegrown Liberty podcast, Free Talk Live, The Dirt Doctor Radio Show, the uh, Wealth Steading Podcast, and uh, just some other ones here. But I mean, those are kind of the, now. Do I listen to all of those all the time? No. Um, when I get my, you know, like, I work so much now that I don't actually listen to podcasts or radio or anything as much as I did when I had a, a regular job. Uh, what I used to do when I was uh, with a regular job, I would have an hour in the car every day in the morning that I'd record my show, but the hour home, uh, I would listen to other things on the way home. I'm blessed because I have an incredible research team, thousands and thousands of people to listen to the show. I just get stuff sent to me. The volume of stuff sent to me, a lot of stuff that never gets on the air and doesn't even get shared in social media, uh, it still has an incredible impact on the total view that I have of things. So I'll research really quick, and if it doesn't really warrant a show spot or I just don't have room for it, um, it'll still help me form an opinion on other things. And I think this is the what the heart of the quest question is, is how do we know what to believe? How do we get our information? I get questions like this from time to time. 
And, and the reality is, all of the information has value, including Fox News, spelled F-A-U-X, right? Okay? It, it, the MSN. Like, it all has value because it's a viewpoint with an agenda. And I, I don't care what anybody says, every single person that's in the business of talking about current events, putting out content, has an agenda. Even when they say, I'm as pure as the driven snow and I have no agenda, I only report the facts. Bullshit. Because we all have political bias, we all have personal leanings, and it's always going to come through in what we do, including and up to the point where we select what we're going to talk about. I have an agenda with the Survival Podcast. Even when I'm not talking about politics and, and current events. I, am, I have a transparent agenda, though. It's not hidden. My agenda is to empower liberty and freedom in the hearts and minds of the people that listen to this show. That's my agenda. To make you question authority at every opportunity, to make you think about your life in a way that's different than anything you've ever done before you found what we're doing now. To educate you with as much information about as many diverse topics as possible. I'm trying to create modern Renaissance men and women, in, in a sense. They know that specialization has a purpose, but generalist is also important. To I want as many people as possible to be entrepreneurs, because I know where it leads. It leads to freedom. It often leads to the the person that, that's like a dyed in the wool liberal Democrat or uber conservative right winger, either or, that actually develops a successful business especially in the new modern types of businesses, usually head straight on into libertarianism, if not voluntarism. Because as soon as you actually realize what it takes to create this, you realize that we're being stolen from at every opportunity by both sides. So my agenda is clear. Freedom, liberty, independence, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, strong communities, strong families. Okay? Well, everybody else has an agenda too. So they're going to bring, it's like, we, we, I, I get on mainstream media and call it fake news. A lot of times it is fake news, but a lot of times it's not. It's just biased news. So what I actually believe is you should get as much information from as many sources as possible and then resolve the conflicts through research and logic and intuition. Your intuition is something to trust at all times. And what, what, what I mean by that is different than being reactionary with emotion. And I lose, I lose it too sometimes. You know, I'll share a story without researching and go, that was bullshit. I should have never shared that. Right? It happens. But when you see something that's an extreme claim, Obama refuses to stand for the national anthem. Okay, that was an example of one. Or no, Obama refuses to cover his heart for the national anthem or salute. And they show Obama standing with his hands behind his back in this picture. Okay? And there's like, you know, you can see military service people with their rendering the salute. And it looks like they're playing the national anthem. Well, when you think about that, no matter how anti-American you think Barack Obama was, this is why before he ran for re-election, no politician is this stupid. No politician is this stupid. None. Not that our elected president of the United States anyway. So your intuition, like if you hated Obama, it was easy to just believe that from bias. But your intuition, if you if you separate kind of kind of a Buddhist Zen thing here, and say, without attachment, does this make sense? No. It doesn't make sense. 
So when you researched it, what did it turn out? The photo indeed was of a place where the National Anthem was played. It was played right after the song that was currently playing, and the band was playing while this was going on, Hail to the Chief! They were playing it to the President. So if he had, you know, did some sort of salute or hand covering his heart then, it was asinine. Because he would be honoring himself, and that's egotistical. So, and not that the guy's not egotistical, but he's not stupid. So that's an example of misinformation from people you probably are more likely to agree with than the MSN. And there's misinformation in all this stuff. And the misinformation, if we, if we get the same concept from multiple sources, the misinformation from some of them will result in conflicts. And if we resolve those conflicts, then we get a true picture of what's going on. And it, it forces us to let go of our perception bias. And it amazes me when I do this, how I get attacked by this audience and other followers of mine through other media that are pissed off that you're siding with them. I'm not siding with anybody. I'm siding with the truth. I have some people pissed off at me because of what I said about Google on Friday and Google and YouTube and demonetizing platforms because there's people that love Wrangler Star, which is how the story came to me, that he had a lot of his videos demonetized. People love nothing fancy, etc. And all of these advertisers that threatened boycotts and all these video, all these uh, videos got demonetized. And because I told the facts, I got people saying, you're being an apologist for Google. I beat Google like a red-headed stepchild in that piece. Beat the hell out of them. But in the end... No one takes a $750 million hit on the chin and just lets it go. I saw a guy with an associated video of mine come on and say, that's not even real money to them. You are an idiot. $750 million is real money to everybody. Maybe not the government. Maybe not the government sometimes, okay? But that's 10% of their advertising revenue for the platform for the year. 10%. Yeah, it matters. And that was just to be like, how much worse could it have got? So they had to do something. So then I'm attacked for pointing out the obvious because it doesn't fit the perception bias of the individual. And that's what you have to fight in all this. It's not so much who you get your information from and where you learn it from, but how do you fight your own perception and confirmation bias? It's amazing to me that I'll find videos of police officers, for instance, totally abusing power, beating the shit out of people, lying to people, whatever it is, I'll post that and I'm a cop hater. Okay? And then... I'll see somebody do the same thing. I'll look into it. Turns out, cop's not wrong. Or at least what the cop did is understandable under the law. So I'll point that out. Now I'm a bootlicker. See, and, and the way you know that your thoughts are independent and based on facts is when both sides hate you at different times. That's how you know you're actually thinking independently. When the one side always hates you and the other side always agrees with you, In the dichotomy that we exist in, there's no way your thoughts are independent. None. Now, I've been called a right-wing conservative freak, a Nazi, a fascist, okay, from one group of people, and called a socialist, communist, liberal by another group of people in the same day. Sometimes over the same issue. Now you know, you might not be right, but at least you're forming independent opinions. You're actually thinking for yourself. And I think that's the important thing to understand in all this. The, the media control is done through a binary falsehood. Okay, So just like computers use binary code, every bit of computer 
logic comes down to ones and zeros, offs and ons. And it makes sense. It's a logical thing. And it's very easy then to get the human mind to think in this logical manner. Yes or no. Do you support Trump bombing Syria? Yes or no. And then immediately, whoever does it will attack you with no thought about why you have that opinion. No discussion. Just, oh, you just love killing people. You know, maybe there's another reason that person does that. Maybe the information they have led them to that opinion. Or maybe when I say no, oh, you're anti-American. Wait a minute. Not blowing stuff up. Ineffectively, by the way. Okay, it completely ineffectively. You, you, there's a, there's an air, there's an air base. Do you say launch chemical weapons attacks, which already doesn't make sense? But even if that's the case, you send in a couple hundred million dollars worth of cruise missiles that can turn on Maine and go through somebody's front window if you want them to, and you don't touch the runways. And less than a day later, planes are taking off and running missions out of there again. And you say you did it to dissuade the enemy. You blew up a couple useless buildings there. Okay, see, so at that point, even if you're right about the chemical weapons, even if the strike was justified, and I'm not saying this, but even if it was, it was ineffectual. So then I would oppose the strike even if I was for the sentiment, because it didn't do any good. It didn't matter. It was a waste of money and resources, and it doesn't make any sense. That's an independent thought, and it's not what you're hearing on that issue or these other issues. That's how you have to get to your opinion, and your opinion and mine don't need to be the same for me to see value in your opinion. When your opinion is a parroted narrative for the left or the right, I have no value of your opinion. Because I know you just chose a side. And that's, when you're talking about control and manipulation of media, what, you, what you'd like to believe is the media is just left and biased. The media, like the government, does not give a shit what side you pick. Just that you pick a side. Once you've picked a side, the content can be generated to make you feel however they want you to feel because we already have a predisposed way we're going to feel once we've chosen a side. It is only by not choosing a side and not taking anybody's content as 100% factual or anybody's content, period, without agenda behind it that you can actually do research and form independent opinions. I prefer to look more to information about how to do stuff in my life now than who's right politically. I've kind of really settled in. on Vin does a show once a week. He has an hour without a guest, and that hour is on current events. And that's become a good outlet for me to get, get an alternative view from a person that I know is doing what I just said, logically breaking it down and deconstructing it. I might not agree with the opinion that he has at the end of it, But I'll know more about it, and I'll be able to form a better opinion for myself. That's real information. That's real media. That's not what you get from TV. You get prepackaged things that tell you what they want you to know, and that tells you how to feel. And you'd think they can't tell everybody how to feel because not everybody agrees. But the majority fall off in the binary dichotomy. So they know when that one piece of content goes out, it's going to make the right-leaning people feel this way and the left-leaning people feel that way. And then we can just use our own little binary code of tick and tack and tick and tack to keep everybody divided and everybody hating each other and nobody talking to each other except the people that agree with them. It's the, the, the you know, the, the analogy would be preaching to the choir, right? Everybody continues to preach to the choir and hate the person outside the door of the church that really needs to come inside. That's media manipulation and control. And it can be done for, for, with everything to get you to choose Coke over Pepsi or to get you to choose Ask Clown A over Ask Clown B. That's what's really going on. Let's take another one. 
pretty simple, quick one here. We're moving into a different variety of things today and continuing to expand knowledge, right? So it says, question. This is from, doesn't say who it's from. Uh, I'm going to call you Tom because you didn't give me a name and there's not even a name in your email. <laughs> He says, uh, is pinching off flowers a good idea to encourage vegetative growth in young plants? Details. I know that uh, thinning the number of fruits on some trees will allow them to put more energy into remaining fruits. I have some young plants, aronia, choke cherry, uh, elderberry, kiwi, apricot, that are either brand new or one-year-old that are at various stages of budding and flowering. I'd rather they put as much energy into vegetative growth as possible instead of fruiting this year. Would pinching off the buds, flowers accomplish this? Um, yeah, maybe, possibly, and maybe you should. Okay, it depends. So here's how to look at this. Number one, a lot of times young plants will flower, and they won't they won't set fruit. Okay, and the flower doesn't really take a lot of energy. The flowering, the fruit set doesn't even really take a lot of energy. The development of the fruit is what's the big energy drain on young plants. So what we can do instead of going out there pinching every flower off, okay. Um, we can just kind of monitor them and see do they start to set fruit. If they start to set fruit, we can then reduce the fruit just like you're talking about, and that'll save energy in them. If we don't have a lot of plants, because I see this like, you know, I put in 200 trees at a time, and then their first year, I, I just can't see me out there pulling every blossom off 200 trees. I would go insane. If it's a couple plants here and there and you want to do that, it's certainly, if If, it, if you prevent them from setting fruit, they won't use any energy toward fruit production at all, and they will they will do, go further toward producing you know more vegetative growth. However, plants generally set fruit one of two times. Okay, and there's two conditions that arrive: the plant's ready to do it, okay, or the plant is stressed to the point where it's doing it as a survival mechanism, expects to die, or it thinks not surviving could be a real. I really might not make it to next season. Now, plants don't have conscious thought like we do, but that's basically the way to understand it. So if we want to make a plant produce young, if we stress it, it'll produce. It's not good, but it'll work. We can do that. If we want to get a plant to produce at a younger age or smaller size than it usually would produce at, with a tree, for instance, we can cause it to canopy with training and pruning so that you know up about head height, it already starts to have the branches come out and, 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 and droop down. That's the tree signal. It's reached the top of the canopy of surrounding trees, and now it's okay to fruit. We can use that for or against us. Simply by not training a tree into a drooping form in its first year, it probably won't set much fruit at all. Some will, some won't, but most won't. Um, when you look at things like aronia and elderberry, um, they're not going to be harmed. I mean, they're designed to produce right away. Now, can you get a little more vigor and growth out of them? Sure. And the nice thing about elderberry is they set those nice little pancake, you know, it's like a bunch of little blossoms that looks like one big blossom. You cut those right off and make fritters out of them or something or use them to make mead or infuse a beer or something like that. So there's a use for them. And it's like one snip and you got a whole big clump. right? So you can do that, but elder's pretty vigorous stuff. And most plants are going to only have a heavy fruit set in at the time that it is, 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 is right for them to. But if you have a tree that's clearly stressed and you see it start to set fruit, yeah, take that fruit off and give it some love and care and let it put that energy into growth. The one exception, 
The one exception that I think makes a lot of sense to just deny yourself any fruit for the first year and really get vigor into is strawberry plants. The first year you put your strawberry plants, when they start flowering, just start pinching. Just start pinching. Now, if you have an everbearer, and by midsummer you've got good fertility and they're really going gangbusters and you want to let them go ahead and flower and give you some fruit, that's fine. But you're even better off just taking them all the way to the next season. You'll get a lot better results from your strawberries that way because they'll develop the root system, which is the life of that strawberry plant, at a much higher level. It's even more important than the top growth uh, there with those because usually you're planting chromes, uh, so you're just planting bare roots, or you're planting started bare roots that really are pretty pathetic. If you've ever bought strawberry plants to plant, if you've ever taken the dirt off them and looked what kind of root system they have, it's pretty pathetic their first year. So you want to give it the, the, the ability to build up those energy reserves before you start taking from it. And, and that would be the one plant that I would highly suggest that. Another that you might really wean off of early fruiting is blueberry. Uh, because a lot of them, when you buy them in pots, they're really stressed, and that's why they're going to fruit right away. But everything else, I wouldn't worry about it too much unless you can tell that the plant's stressed. I had a question recently about fishing from a canoe, and uh, th there's some follow-up here from Daniel. Daniel says, In a recent episode, while answering a question about camping and fishing from a canoe, you suggested buying the biggest canoe you can handle and transport. While that's good advice, I wanted to offer a different perspective. I have a 17-foot Coleman canoe that weighs about 100 pounds and it's currently outfitted. Uh, it's great for fishing with a friend and paddling with my family, but I do a lot of solo fishing and hunting where the length and the weight are a hindrance. Paddling fast-moving water is akin to racing a school bus through a crowded parking lot. It just doesn't work well. For anybody getting into canoeing for the first time, I'd recommend borrowing or renting a couple different canoes before purchasing or buying a used one on Craigslist so you can recoup your money if you want to try something different. Jack, thanks for the show and for all you do. Um, I would agree. I'd say that there's a lot of advantage when you want to go small to going with a, pr a properly outfitted fishing kayak as well for the, the solitary adventure type thing. The person that originally wrote in had a 10-foot canoe, and that would probably be much easier, as Daniel's saying, for individual use than a 17-foot canoe. So what this makes me realize is maybe I wasn't really clear about what I was saying, though, with the canoe. Um, I mentioned this, but maybe when I said big as you can get, maybe this wasn't really understood. There are little wheel things that can go on your canoe and make it pretty easy for a, a person to move a big canoe into the water all by themselves. And what I was really suggesting that people might want to consider if they want to get into using canoes a lot for fishing is to get one with a flat rear transom, and you get a trolling motor and a trolling motor battery, and then you just go. And I mean, you know, a little $120, you know, 42-pound thrust standard 12-volt Minn Kota will move a canoe, man. It will move it really, really nice for you. So I was thinking more along those lines instead of, you know, paddling heavily everywhere you had to go. If you're going to paddle, yeah, I'd say a smaller one. I didn't save the email, but I had another suggestion for this individual and for anybody with canoes. If you're going to be using a canoe alone, get a kayak paddle. And one guy with a kayak paddle can, can, can paddle a small canoe as fast as two people with standard oars. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I definitely know that it would work better. And uh, I, would, I would definitely agree with that, is, is, is getting a kayak paddle for your canoe if you're going to be a solitary canoeer. So I want to throw that in as well. Anyway, Daniel, thank you for the additional thoughts on that. I'm sure it will help people that are want to get into that way of life. And I think it's, you know, boating, no matter how you do it, is always, uh, it's always fun, and it's always on some level a floating hole into which you throw money. 
So the smaller the hole and the less money when you're getting started, probably the better. And I think renting is a really good idea or trying some stuff out and you know, borrowing or what have you or picking up something used on Craigslist. I would say that it's almost inconceivable that anybody wanting to buy a canoe couldn't find one of the size and type they're looking for on Craigslist in almost any area of the country for less than you'd get one at a store. So at least give it a shot. So I get this on... Uh I get this email here from Black Dog, and Black Dog says, Saw this on my local Craigslist in Wisconsin. $1,000 a month living a bus. Yeah, I'm going to pass. The thing is that when I go and look this up, this is not in Wisconsin. It's in California. So maybe they're advertising on all of the Craigslist for people that might want to you know, live the tiny house lifestyle. And this is located in Martinez, California, about 30 minutes from Oakland. Let me read the... Uh, the listing to you. He said he would pass. I think if I was in Wisconsin, I would pass too. But there's a lesson here in understanding value for value and marketing, etc. Large one-bedroom tiny house for rent furnished. Ever dream of living in a tiny home, struggling to find an affordable place to live in the city? Tired of loud neighbors and thin walls? Do you have pets and find it impossible to find pet-friendly rentals? Well, honey, you just found the jackpot. This tiny home was constructed using a school bus by my husband and I. We lived in it along with our two very large dogs for over two years and loved it. Our family has grown and we have moved into a larger space, but this would be a perfect setup for a single person or a couple. We believe you could feasible live in this space with a child, but it would be a little work to have done if you wanted to create a separate or second bedroom. Uh, as you walk in the door, you enter the living room that has a queen-size uh, futon couch which can be laid flat to host visitors. There's a small desk for your TV or computer and a large bookshelf storage area. Next is the kitchen, which was made for cooks with plenty of storage and counter space. It has a full size sink and a sprayer hose. Uh, Breville oven and fridge included. There is a wall and a door that separates the kitchen from the bathroom, which features a full-size shower and composting toilet. Next you, will have, next you have the bedroom, which is furnished with two large closets and a queen-size bed that has storage underneath. Another wall separates the bedroom from the rear of the bus, which was reserved as extra storage space and is accessible for the, through the rear emergency door. This space currently has an industrial-strength uh, ELFA shelving, which we use to store tools, garden supplies, sporting equipment, etc., but it could easily be converted into a second bedroom. The whole bus has custom curtains for privacy, loads of storage space, and includes three air conditioning units for the summer and the small space heaters for cool days. The bus is located in Martinez, California, approximately 30 minutes from Oakland. The bus is also for sale if you're interested. It drives very well, has water storage tanks and solar panels. We'd be willing to consider a rent-to-own agreement. Rent is $1,000 a month with all utilities and garbage included, free laundry on site, pets welcome with non-refundable $500 deposit, so that's basically a pet extortion fee. Uh, last month's rent and reference required, 420 friendly, no smoking allowed inside. Please call Shiloh. Okay. Let's, somebody is out there going, whoo, 420, and somebody's going, what the hell's that mean? That means they don't care if you smoke dope. Okay? But don't smoke your dope inside the little house. Alright, so here's how I have to look at this. If I am single and I need a place to live, in Martinez, California, what does an apartment cost? And the answer is around $1,400 a month for a crappy 500-square-foot one-bedroom apartment in an apartment complex that I'm not sure I want to live in from the little bit of research that I did. So I'm already saving 400 bucks by living in this tiny home bus. 
Does that mean I would do it? Well, I probably would opt not to live in Martinez, California, but not everybody has that option. So if I was single and had to live there, and I was between $1,400 for an apartment plus paying California's electric bills, and a thousand bucks to live here with people that clearly are homesteader-type-like people, I might choose to live in this bus for a year while I figure out what to do in my life and take the $400 a month and put it away and end the year almost five grand ahead. So that's one way of looking at this. I still probably wouldn't do it, but I can understand why somebody would. Here's another way of looking at this. What if you're one of these people that's like, I want to live in a tiny house. I think it'll be amazing. Well, why don't you rent one for a year and see if the lifestyle is really for you? Oh, with a rent-to-own option, by the way, where you can drive your tiny house away. And I'd much rather have a tiny house built in a school bus than one of these stupid trailers that always seems to break down, right? School buses are designed to bear the weight. You can drive it to where you want it to go. You can stop it. You can hook it up, and you're done. So if I was going to do a tiny house, I'd be more likely to do something like this than a typical tiny house. So I think there's value there. But the whole point is... There is probably someone that's going to take this person up, even though the person that sent the story to me was immediately put off by the cost. Because maybe he didn't even, like, just saw it, didn't really read it, um, and didn't realize it was an out of town listing. Because it changes everything. Would, would somebody pay a thousand bucks to live in a bus in, in, in the Dallas Fort Worth area? Probably not, because you can get a damn nice one bedroom apartment for around $800. So it might rent for more like 600 here. But again, utilities included. Laundry service, not service, but you know, you have a place to do your laundry. Sounds like they're doing what I advised the last person that was looking for an RV person to kind of come live on their place. And now think about that for value differential. So the last person was basically you can have a space here for your RV for free if you help look after our animals. This person saying, I basically have a custom-built RV living situation you can pay to live in. Different people would have different viewpoints about each of those. I don't own an RV. So the first one doesn't really interest me because I don't have one. I don't have money to buy one. But if I'm already spending $1,500 a month to live in a shitty apartment, and I can spend 1000 bucks and live in a bus, and it's kind of cool and quirky, and maybe I'm interested in exploring that, Well, that looks like a pretty good option. Keep that in mind as we go into our final segment today. And this brings us up to our final segment of the day. And um, like I said, I think you'll see how these two kind of fit together. This is from Brandon. Brandon says, how do you set a price for a homestead-sitting business? This would be a part-time thing for my wife to earn extra income for us. I look forward to hearing your thoughts, Brandon. Okay. Um. I guess the problem with this is it infers that it actually matters what the business is when it comes to how you set a price. Prices are set by two major forces. The first one is the provider's metrics. And the second is the market's willingness to pay. And those are always the two and only when the service or product can be provided in a way that meets the provider's metrics in such a way that it's beneficial to the provider to provide it, that the market will answer, only when the market answers it in a way that that works out will it be a viable business. And what I mean by that is, if I wanted to produce a thing we'll call a widget, and I want to sell my widgets to make money, 
And when I look at all of the inputs, I have to sell my widgets for $100 to make money. And there are many solutions out on the market today that fill this need for $50. Unless I can come up with very compelling reasoning to the market why my solution is worth twice as much, it doesn't matter that my metrics say I have to sell it for $100. Okay? That, that's how that works. Because I'm going to tell you how to figure out your, your initial price, but then you have to temper it against the market force. Because you may find out that you can do this and it's just not worth it to you. Or you may find out that you can do this and it's totally worth it. But you have to start with your metrics. So you say your wife is going to do this part-time as a homestead-sitting business. I don't know that you've even figured out exactly what that means yet. Does that mean that she's going to live at the place? Or does that mean that she's going to go buy the place in the morning and the evening? That's going to limit your market if, there's, if, it's, if it's not living at the place. And there's some people that are not going to be comfortable with somebody living at their place. <clears throat> Now, assuming it means she's going to live at the place, you know, because a lot of homesteads, that's kind of what it takes. When you, you're talking fa small farmsteads and things like that where people really need a service like that. Um, you know, animals need to be fed, looked after, moved, put away at night, um, just keeping an eye on a place because a lot of times there's a lot of things that can be stolen. You really don't like to have somebody off site for a full week or something like that to take a vacation, that type of thing. The person that's, that's big enough, the person like me. Big enough to have a business, but not big enough to have interns on staff, right? So I just I can't like just take a summer vacation when my, I have my interns all staffed up, and that's what a lot. That's like what Greg Judy does with his grazing operation. He takes his vacation kind of in the, a midpoint of the year when you just say, hey, you know, the interns got it for the year. I'll come back and everything will be just fine. So now we have to figure out well what is what is involved with delivering this service. Are you going to carry insurance for this? If so, is it, is, it, is it something you can get? And if so, how much is it? That would be one. You're going to be driving to and from this place, either to it, staying there the entire time and coming back, or not. It's going to change. If you're staying there, then you're going to be eating food that you're going to be handling a little bit differently. There might be a little bit of added cost there. But there's probably not much of a direct cost in this to, to figure out what's called your cost of goods sold. Because you're going to eat anyway. The driving's probably going to be minimal, and you can just build like in you know distances excess of one hour drive or whatever. There's a charge per mile, or there's a charge per 20 miles, or a charge per 50 miles, whatever it is. Uh, that's its own unit charge. It just covers that. So, unlike a lot of businesses or product-based businesses where there's a lot that goes into the cogs, which again is something that most small business people don't know when you ask them, "What's your cogs?" Well, I don't know. Well, then how do you know how to set your price? Your cost of goods sold is your labor. That's the number one thing in there. So then you start to ask yourself, well, there's two ways to look at this labor component. If you're going by the place twice a day, then your time is a, a direct linear thing. How long it takes you to get there, how long it takes you to do your job, how long it takes to come home, how long you go back. So your two trips a day, you figure out the average, and then you say that's, that's hourly rate. Okay, then there's the other type of thing which I think probably fits better as a homestead-sitting business. That's where, basically, I live on your homestead while you're gone. Now, I'm in a different situation because I'm certainly not working 24 hours a day. I'm probably not working eight hours a day, okay? I'm probably working about four, four, five at the most. But yet, my time is consumed with being there. So what's that worth to me? And once you figure out what whatever you're doing... What you personally need, she personally needs for that 
time to be sacrificed, that's the minimum you can charge. And that's how you figure that out. And you have to do it this way. Imagine that you've done it and you're successful. You're successful now. You actually have more clients than your wife wants to take, and you're going to expand. You have to figure out your labor rate for what you would pay somebody to do it as your employee plus a margin. And you should start out doing it that way with your own labor. So if your wife says, well, you know, to make this worth my time, I need $20 an hour. Well, then you need to bill it about $30 to $40 an hour. Now, if you never plan on growing into a, 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 a you know a client type thing or whatever, then you you know maybe you go a little bit lower. But if you think 20 is what you need, then you need to be up at 25. If you think 15 is what you need, you need to be up at 20. I'm not telling you what the number is. I'm telling you generally when we've had somebody watch this place, we've paid them about 75 bucks a day. But it's not somebody generally doing it as a business. It's a listener or a friend of a friend or something like that. And it's like this is like a mini vacation. They get paid to go on a mini vacation. And that's about as much as I can justify paying. I think the last time I paid a little bit more because I had them do some other things, organize some of my outbuildings and stuff like that for me while I was gone. But, I mean, that's what it's going to come down to is what's your cost to deliver the service and what's the market willing to pay in relation to that cost. And this is a place where most people have a hard time understanding how you want to set a price. You may not because this is a part-time thing. You probably don't want too much business like this. Maybe she wants one person a month or something to put an extra few hundred dollars into the, the coffers every month. That's a great side hustle. Love it if you can find the clients for it. But most people would think, like, well, the more you sell, the better. It depends. It depends. And my view of the pricing curve is that you have to understand customer dynamics. If I charge... One penny for the MSB, a lot of people wouldn't buy it. Now, you might now, after eight years of hearing about it, if I ran a sale for a penny, sure, right? But like if I came out of the gate and said, the MSB is a penny, you'd be like, well, it can't be worth anything. Do you see what I'm saying? It's easier to understand with a physical good, right? So if I'm selling, let's say, a cell phone, And I sell that cell phone for $10. Not a special plan. Like, these are just $10. You can buy them. They're unlocked. You turn them on. A lot of people will be like, I just don't think you can make a decent cell phone for $10. bucks. i am not buying that. It's too cheap. And if I raise the price to like $50, bucks, there would be people who would start buying it, right? And it maybe it's like, if I'm like, this thing is equivalent. Does everything that an iPhone 7 does, and it's $99.99, I don't know if it would. There'd be a lot. It's a very big market, a lot of demographic research, but that would probably be really close to a sweet spot where you'd sell as many of them as you possibly could. And maybe you get up around $199, you know, and I'm talking about an iPhone that's selling for $800, and you just start to come down and you start to get less customers. And when you come over your pricing curve and you're just you just begin to get a few less customers. This is hard to do. Take some fiddling around with. But the perfect spot is where you go past your peak and you begin to get a few less. And because what happens is you filter out the pain in the ass customers, the ones you don't want. The people that make a decision over 10 bucks, I don't want. This is the Costco versus Sam's Club model. Costco memberships cost about $10 more than the equivalent Sam's Club membership. Why? Costco doesn't want the customer that makes a decision over $10 a year. They sell higher-end equipment, higher-end stuff, than Sam's Club does 
at thinner margins. They want to sell the $1,000 product, right, or the product that everybody's selling for $1,000, they want to sell for $970 or $950. Where Sam's wants to take the $400 product and sell it for you know, $200 if they can. Let's figure out how to do it. It's kind of a different model. And, and the, the thing is, when you deal with people to make a decision over a dollar, you know, you generally are dealing with the people that complain the most and buy the least. They are the, the, the customer you do not want. When you push past, now this assumes that your product is a premium product or service. The people that, that won't cross that bridge with you, that filters out the people that are going to take time and resources from you. And in the end, you make more money for a variety of reasons. One, even though you have slightly less sales, you have total, a higher total gross sales number. You also have what's, you have a higher ARPU, average revenues, revenue per user or average revenue per unit, depending on how you want to break that down. So that means I'm making less sales for more money each for higher bottom end sales. That means I have less support to do. I have less people to support. I have less customer service. I have less, re, less, less returns, less refunds, less complaints, less everything. Right Now, I don't want to go down to one huge customer because I lose one huge customer, I'm out of business. But I would rather have 100 customers that I'm making $200,000 a year on than 1,000 customers I'm making $200,000 a year on. And this principle, while the numbers change, the principle holds true in any business that you have. If you sell bottom of the market, you get the pain-in-the-ass cheapskate customer. If you sell middle of the market... You get the ones that are willing to come there with you. You sell at the premium, but not the extreme premium. You get the volume and the quality of the customer at the same time. That's So you're going to set your pricing in any business based on those things. And then just flat reality. Like, how much will somebody pay for this? I mean, I think that if you start marketing this as a service... And people contact you and you say, well, it's, you know, whatever, a dollars a day or however you do it. And everybody says no, then you're too high. And your, a great question would be, look, sir, I, I'm just starting out in this business. And, uh, you know, we, we really know what we're doing when it comes to taking animals and looking after people's places and all. But it's hard for us to figure out what is a fair price. What do you think a fair price would be? And if they tell you and it's too low, you say, okay, thank you. I appreciate your input. We can't go that low. And, you, you know, if they say, well, I, I, you know, I'm not shaking you down. I just literally wanted, and then you, if you get that number consistently and it falls below your metrics, you need to either find a way to upsell, like something of value your brain doesn't really cost you anymore, like pointing out security and things like that maybe would be a way to do that. Or you need to find a new business avenue because it's just not viable in your market. Because like I've, I've said before, I think recently, there's been people that have emailed me and go, Jack, I got a whole bunch of ducks and they're laying eggs like crazy now, just like they said you would. I did everything you said and I got all these ducks and they're all happy and they're all great. And I got all these eggs and I can't sell them. You said I could sell them for $8 a dozen. Well, no, no, wait a minute. No, I said I sell my eggs for $8 a dozen. I've never suggested anybody go out and buy 100 ducks out of the gate, not test their market at all. And have no idea what they could do. You have to be able to tell a compelling story to sell your product or service. And I'm good at that. But if you move me to you know, a town with 3,000 people in it, and it's the biggest town within 100 miles, 
I probably can't sell my eggs for $8 a dozen anymore either. But when you're in this urban-rural fringe, which I consider the sweet spot for small-scale producers, and we're surrounded by yuppies, people that are health-conscious, people dealing with health issues, and there's no other source that you can get a reliable source and quantity around here, and no one touches our quality, sure we can get eight bucks a dozen. And we probably could get ten. We probably could get ten. But eight dollars works, it's profitable, and we sell out. Now, there may come a point where we crunch the numbers and say, we need to go to nine dollars a dozen. And then one of two things will happen. Our market will absorb that, and our bottom line will go up, or we'll get pushback from our customers and we won't sell enough product to keep doing it. If that would happen, we could either say, well, we still make money at eight, it's still worth doing, or this, like if something changed our cost basis, this is no longer valid. And see, there's a problem people have with that. They get emotionally attached to the idea of the business. If the numbers don't work, the business doesn't work. So you then, then we would have to go back to the drawing board and say we need to do a better job of marketing and sales, or we need to lean out our costs, or we need to do something else with our time and our energy. You know, and our, our view of it is this. If these ducks pay for themselves and make a little bit of money, the work they do for us saves us so much other time. Because feeding them doesn't really take that long, and you know, Dorothy likes having something that's her own, so her washing the eggs and packaging them every day, that takes her about an hour a day. So as long as she's making enough money to justify an hour or two a day of work, they're worth having for what they do here. I mow the place three times a year, if that. I have no pest issues. My fertility's coming up all the time. I, when I look at what the work those little guys do, okay, and I say if I had to pay someone to come in with you know inputs and fertilizers and do this work for me, what would they charge me? You know, and if I got a part-time farmhand, I even have one, but he's very, very part-time. But a part-time person, like say 20 hours a week to do this, I don't know they could get it all done. Plus, I'd have to buy the inputs. You know, you're talking twenty thousand dollars a year. So those ducks are giving me twenty thousand dollars a year worth of work, which is a benefit I don't have to pay tax on. So there's multiple ways that we look at a business, but in the end, unless we can justify the metrics, we don't do it. So this is going to be a side hustle that you're just going to have to take a shot at and say, how much money do we have to make to make this worth doing per day worked? Put that number on it, throw it out there, see if it works. And that's the good news. In a business like this that's trading your time for, for something, then if it doesn't work, you just quit. You're not into inventory and business licenses and all that other crap. I wouldn't go that far with it. I would take it very much as a side hustle uh, until you decide whether it's something you want to build out. A good friend of mine named Kathy in New Jersey did exactly this with a pet sitting business. She just basically didn't really formalize it. She just kind of put it together, put a little bitty website together, started talking to a few vets that she knew, and uh, getting some referrals for pet sitting, and then eventually, you know, fully licensed and all that stuff, and, and you know, corporate entity and all that, and making a really good living from it for pet sitting. Where you're not saying something, you go let them out in the morning and let them out in the evening and that type of thing. She has regular customers that she works for five days a week because they're at work. So she goes by once a day, lets the dog out, whatever, and she loves dogs and she brings her personality to that. But could she make that money in a place like where I live now? Where almost everybody has a big, large, fenced-in yard and people that have dogs just leave their dogs out during the day? Probably not. But suburbia, New Jersey, full of yuppies and high-paid individuals, she could make a good living babysitting dogs. 
babysitting dogs. It all depends on your market and how well you present yourself. All right. With that, let's uh, remind you, if you do like this show and you'd like to support the work that we do, uh, one way you can do that is just to do your Amazon shopping on tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. It'll take you to a page. You click a link. You go over to Amazon. And you buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, and we get credit as the affiliate that referred your traffic to Amazon. The other way that you can uh, use this service, though, is we also post reviews every day. I have an Encore item today that I reviewed last year. It was one of the one. I'm, what I'm doing, I'm going through with these Encore items, like the top 50 items of 2016, bringing back one a week or something like that. This one's made by E-Tech City. I really like E-Tech City. They have a lot of cool stuff, and it is called the E-Tech City Wireless Remote Control Electrical Outlet Switch. For how much is it? I don't remember now. 29 bucks or something like that, or 24 dollars. Um, let me just check to be sure. $25.48 with free shipping on Prime is how much this is. You get five plugs and two remote controls with included batteries. Not a bad deal. So how does this work? Okay, first of all, the two remote controls are identical. They do the same thing. It just lets you have like one in two different rooms, which is really convenient when I tell you how I'm using them. Then you get these five plugs. They have an internal mechanical switch, and the remote control just basically switches that on or off. You plug it into the wall, and then you plug something into that, that plug. And then when you turn your remote control on, whatever's plugged into it comes on, and when you hit off, whatever's plugged into it goes off. Right now I'm using four. It comes with five of them. They, they're not numbered, which is kind of a pain in the butt. Okay, But all I did was just like plug one in, stick a light in it, And just go on with number one, on with, and just kept going until I found which one it was. And once it turned on, I'm like, okay, that's three. I wrote a three on it. Take the next one, stick it in. Okay, that's two. Next one, stick it in. Okay, that's five. And once they're all labeled with uh, Sharpie, then you know what you're dealing with at all times. So this Christmas, we had our whole Christmas tree, all the stuff on our Christmas tree plugged in to um, basically a power strip. And the power strip was plugged into one of these, uh, into the wall. So all we had to do is just when the tree needed to go off at night, click, tree went off. Kind of cool, because usually trees are a pain in the butt to get behind and all the wires and decorations and all. So that one now is put away, because I don't really need it. I only need four of them. I have two in my office. One runs the lights on my fish tanks, so I don't have to get behind the fish tanks, crawl down on the ground, anything like that. And one runs, a, I have some, some plants starting on a rack behind me with two of the LED grow lights from Kingbow. It runs those. So at the, you know, the end of the evening, after dinner and all, I just walk in here, Turn the fish off, turn the plants off. In the morning when I come in, first thing I do, turn the fish on, turn the, turn the plants on. The other two, we have two floor lamps uh, in our living room that are kind of a pain to reach because of the way we have it designed, whether it's behind the couch and stuff like that. We have those each plugged into it. We can turn one light or the other light on and off. And I have a switch, uh, remote in my, my office, and I have a remote out in the living room, and they'll reach. I can turn the lights on in the living room if I want to. If I'm back here working at night and Dorothy goes to bed, turns the light off, I can pick that thing up and turn the light on so I don't kick my foot going down the hallway until I hit off my little emergency lights. So it's just cool. And there's it's unlimited what you could do with them. You could use it as a security thing, too. I mean, imagine being able to turn something on or off from up to 100 feet away. And no programming needed, no technology, no technological knowledge needed at all. If you understand how to plug something in and push a button, you can use these things. They're plug and play. You can't mess it up. At least I haven't figured out how to mess it up yet, and I'm pretty good at messing up stuff. E-Tech City Wireless Remote Control for Electrical Outlets. Item of the day at tspaz.com. And always you can support us 
Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online and take a look at Amazon before you make your purchasing decisions. And when you make your decisions that way on Amazon, you'll help us. It doesn't cost you anything. doesn't even really take any more time. And again, we bring these, these reviews to you every day for value add. Uh, last, let's talk about the song of the day. So I really have dug John Adam helping me out and going out and coming up with a list of all of these different songs for me. Because one, it takes away like one thing. And I think when you start looking at like hiring people to do stuff, you, you, you start to realize the value when you're actually a busy person of one thing being taken off your plate and not having to worry about a song of the day for the last like 20 episodes and for the next like 20 episodes, I'm pretty stoked about it. And when someone's doing a really good job at that one thing, maybe better than you could have, that's when you got a home run. So John volunteering to do this, I really appreciate you, sir, and you've come up with some good ones. I think today is one of the best ones ever. And he's got a good write-up for me with it, too, which makes it even easier. The song is by John Fogarty, who I think is somebody that could have done so much more if the nastiness with the breakup of CCR and the record company holding him hostage had not happened. I think this guy could have turned out 20 or 30 big-time hit albums. And I think what prevented him from doing more music was just being fed up with it all. And some of the later stuff he came out with, like he just lost that magic that you have early on. So uh, the album Centerfield was what this song came from, and that was probably the best thing he ever did independently as a, as a total album. Um, here's what uh, uh, John Adam has to say about this song by John Fogarty. Again, I saw it on TV. At this time, at the time Centerfield came out, popular media culture was leading a big 50s and 60s boomer revival. As aging hippies try to recall their glory days in the past, and television shows such as 30-something were big hits, this song was part of that nostalgia. Remembering what it was like to be a kid in the 50s, watch television, bits of memories from the time of Howdy Doody and DiMaggio Yankee years, Annette Funicello on the Mickey Mouse Club, and, uh, and so on, all mentioned in the song with typical boomer perspective. The dream and innocence died when JFK was shot. For instance or the insistence that he never understood why anyone went to Vietnam. Ike is Dwight Eisenhower. Yes, this is in regards to the domino theory of Dwight Eisenhower's administration, that if Vietnam fell to communism, so would the rest of Asia. It was an unrealistic assumption. Yet, there's another layer of boomer culture that hits here. He mentions Cronkite's 6 p.m. recitation of the Vietnam statistics, talks of gathering in front of the television his family every night. Television was defining cultural phenomenon of the boomers. It's what shaped and informed their worldview and generation. He's being slightly facetious with the chorus, but they did believe everything they saw and heard on TV, no matter who presented it. Cronkite said well, the war was lost, so it was. No matter what the actual soldiers and generals on the ground said and knew, the whole nation was opposed to the Vietnam War. Can't you see those huge crowds of protesters? Four Guys from England refers to the Beatles taking the world by storm and leading us into the birth of rock and roll. Bands popped up everywhere, and there was a music explosion. All Too Soon We Hit the Moon references the moon landing and a man walking on the moon in 1969. But Vietnam still raged on, and a generation of young men were killed. However, the corporations made a bundle for the war, from the war. The old man rocks among his dreams, a prisoner of the porch. The light, he says, at the end of the tunnel was nothing but a burglar's torch. 
refers to Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam. Johnson chose not to run again for the presidency in 68, leaving Vice President Hubert Humphrey to take the Democratic nomination. Although frustrated by the war in Vietnam, Johnson wanted the presidency. He knew, however, that he had no chance of winning again due to the strong anti-Vietnam protest and thus decided not to seek a second term. Thus, after his presidency, he had nothing to do but rock among his dreams, as in a rocking chair, a prisoner of the porch, because he primarily retired to the LBJ ranch in Johnson City. Um, Quote, the light at the end of the tunnel was nothing but the burglar's torch. That was the Watergate scandal when Nixon had people break into the opposing party's headquarters and tried to cover it up but by saying it was burglars and that that, that that was the flashlight was seen. Quite a few people helped him try to cover this up, but they were all painted guilty as, as well. Some went to jail for short terms and once released wrote books about the incident and became rich and famous, and now were free of jail. He resigned in 1974 as impeachment proceedings were being brought against him. Nixon was later pardoned by his vice president, now President Gerald Ford. The old man was chained to an endless tomb by the death of his son in a senseless war, Vietnam, that was never officially a war but a police action. Obviously, as it was, the man's only son, he never recovered from the loss. Um, that's Ford, by the way. This blind trust in television and obedience to pop culture icons was far too do dominant for many boomers. It still goes on today. It must be true. Dan Rather said it. It must be accurate. It was on television. Younger generations tend to have this problem with the Internet, as if writing something down makes it valid and trustworthy. Back then, they knew it was so because it was on TV, and seeing is believing, especially when it's entertaining. Indeed. So this really fits in with our discussion about media perception and media manipulation today, doesn't it? And I think a lot of people that have heard this song never really listened to the lyrics and hit on like all of this history that's in it. And if you think about it, like it really was the time to bring this song out. The Wonder Years, right, is is a classic example of this nostalgia coming up. You know, that show actually got its idea and was inspired by a Christmas story with a narration in the background, but it went back further in time. So th this was a big phenomenon going on. People looking back to these days where things were simpler. I know it's true, oh so true, because I saw it on TV. I would also say by this point, people were waking up, the innocent died, is not just Kennedy, to the fact that you can't just trust what's said on the TV, or the radio, or the news. And I think today we have people that still trust these sources. Like, it must be true, because I've, everybody knows, everybody believes. Like, everybody believing something does not mean that it's true. That's not a valid logical argument. But many people do still think this way. However, I think a lot of people don't. They don't think this way. And people that maybe weren't the boomers, but my generation, Generation X, and you guys that are tweeners, the guys that you, they really can't figure out to call you, or you Baby Boom 2, or you Gen X Light, or whatever. You know, people that were born from about 1960 up till about 1980. We have this whole different view of this. We watched our parents losing faith in this system. And we were naturally suspicious. That's why Gen X was labeled as being apathetic, not really caring. Well, as I said in an earlier episode, that's how everybody was by the 1990s. It wasn't just us as young people. Old people were like, didn't give a shit anymore either. And there's this, there is this memory of when you did trust most. You know, if you grew up watching reruns of the original Batman and actually liking it, 
and Brady Bunch and, and sitcoms where everything was always wrapped up in a nice little bundle at the end and the right thing always happened. And, and you know, if you remember feeling that that was the way things were, there is a nostalgia that you want to go back to it. But when we look through the lens of history, we realize it was never that way. It was just painted that way for us on TV. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope you enjoy this closing song. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast to help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. They sent us home to watch the show coming on the little screen. A man named Mike was in the White House, big black limousine. There were many shows to follow, from Hooter to Dutyville. Though I saw them all, I can't recall which cartoon was real. The coonskin caps, Yankee bats, the hound dog man's big start. The A-bomb fears, Annette had ears, I lusted in my heart. A young man from Boston said, sail the new frontier. And we watched the dream, dead end in Dallas, they buried in a sunset here.
casa, sol e 